another opportunity, another day, first of all, that you gave us to live and to honor you and to glorify your name, Father. We, we want to pray over the, the offering. We want to pray over the seeds that were planted today. Father, we know, just as always, we, we know that this has fallen on good ground. The good stewardship of RBC would assure that this goes exactly where you're calling at this place, Father. We're so grateful and we thank you for the faithful givers. We know that we know that the blessing is already there as you spread out in your word, Father. We thank you for that. In Jesus' mighty name, we're all in agreement. Amen and amen. Okay, let's give Pastor a warm Wednesday morning, Wednesday evening welcome. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's on. All right. Good evening. So let me just tell you what happened. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. yeah? Okay. So we, um, you guys obviously know that we've been having some issues with our CDs that have been recorded. So we, we called in a company by the name of PacWest. I'm going to say their name so that if you ever use them, that you'll know that they're going to sabotage your sound. Um, but they basically unplugged everything. So we come in. That's not ready, but just wait a second. Um, they, we come in and... All of our sound doesn't work. Everything's out of whack. So John's back there. If at any point you hear me automatically get really loud, it's because something finally got plugged in. Um, so we'll just roll with it and see what happens. Amen. Um, oh, it sounds like something turned on. Can you hear me louder all of a sudden? I can hear myself unless my ears popped. I just came from Brazier Park, too. Are we good? Yeah. All right. So let's do this. Let's have all the kids go. Children's Church, youth, you guys can head out. The rest of you, if you are comfortable where you are, then that's fine. If you want to get closer so that you can get a better sight of, of what's happening here, then go ahead and, and do that as well. Could you turn those can lights on for me, Brother Ray? Can you hit those lights for me? Just turn them on. Yeah. There we go. All right. Praise God. Amen. How's everybody doing? Good? Okay. Well, you have to excuse me. I'm trying to, to calm down after figuring out everything that's going on. Um, I think we're, we're getting back to, to where we need to be. I'm coming down. We're okay. Everything's good. Are you ready? Are you sure? Because some of you are just staring at me like, do a dance for me, brother. I'm not going to do that this evening. Let's pray, and then let's see what happens and, and where we go from here. Amen? All right. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to come tonight to hear your word. Thank you, Lord, for your great servant that you used during a tremendously dark time. And God, I pray that tonight as we hear the story of John Wycliffe, that our hearts would be encouraged, that our own boldness, Lord, would be encouraged and challenged that if a man could stand during the darkness of his day, that we could stand with the word of God in hand, with boldness in our day. And I pray, God, that you, you show us great truths in the life of this man. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the last time that we were together, we left off with the phrase that is known as, or called, post-tenebras lutes, which... Translated means after darkness, light. Amen. 
Last time we were walking through or giving a, giving a an idea of what that darkness was when we went back to the 14th century and looked at how spiritual darkness covered the world. Out of that darkness, God raised up what is known as, known as or who is known as the morning star of the Reformation. His name is John Wycliffe. There's a picture of him there, if you can see it. At this time, it's important for us to get an idea of what the world looked at like even during Wycliffe's time. We saw last time that the Roman Empire was on the rise, that the tyranny of the seat of, of the papacy ruled the world. Darkness was what people lived in, and they lived in that darkness for at least 1,000 years. The true gospel was being proclaimed in spite of this darkness, God was using men. He was use, using lights to carry on the torch of the gospel, even during that dark time. God's word would not fail. God's will would not fail. The gospel would not be silenced. And God was going to have his way in spite of this darkness. The principles of saving faith were still at work even during the dark ages. Now, in the beginning of the 14th century, God is raising up this shining light called or named John Wycliffe. And this would be really the kind of light that John Wycliffe is going to be used to show. It's going to be the first light that we've seen in a thousand years. The light would illuminate the land in a way that it's so desperately needed because the people, again, were walking in darkness. God was going to usher in the beginnings of what is known as the Reformation. The light of the gospel, again, was going to be shined by a man ordained by God, by God John Wycliffe. Now, <clears throat> let's look at the early life of John Wycliffe. You can go to that slide there. Keep on going. There we go. Early life of John Wycliffe. The early life of John Wycliffe. <clears throat> John Wycliffe was born between 1319 and 1323. Now, it's not known for sure, but we're going to go with 1323. He was born in the region of Yorkshire in a town called Wycliffe. Amen. Now, unless you're a really good listener, I would suggest you also listen and take notes. All right. So let's let's practice. It. I told you he was going to do that. Amen. Thank you, John. Everyone's awake now. <laughs> when John Wycliffe was growing up, the influence of the papacy was literally at an all-time high. The Pope at that time was Pope John the 22nd. There he is. Um, I wanted to throw a lot of pictures in because I know that you guys are kind of interested to put faces to some of these names. Uh, my computer was not being cooperative with me, so you'll see some pictures, but not as much as last time. The Pope made a papal decree, or a papal bull, which makes it law, okay? He made a papal decree, or papal bull, which, in which he stated that he was to be referred as our Lord God, the Pope. This is John the 22nd Pope, okay? He made a papal bull, or a papal decree, 
that he was to be referred as our Lord God, the Pope. He was a wicked man. And he operated in the same spirit as every pope before him and every pope after him. That is the spirit of the Antichrist. The power and excesses of Rome were illustrated in the lifestyles of the popes and the bishops of the Roman Catholic Church. There was one bishop in England named William Wycombe who owned 50 manors throughout England. If you don't know what a manor is, a manor is an estate. He owned 50 estates throughout England. That's a lot. (laughs) One man owning that much in a land. The people had been manipulated by the church for their money and then also of where to place their faith. The common man in England was in bondage to Rome. And they were also in bondage to the seven sacraments that Rome used to exploit the people. Now, how did they do that? With what we were talking about last week. Making people think that they could escape the penalty of their sin by paying their way out of hell. By paying their way out of purgatory. In order to get rich, the Roman Catholic Church devised false doctrines in which people could save their souls through paying priests who were selling indulgences both to the living and to the dead. If you remember from last time, we saw a picture of indulgences and what those look like. You're going way too far. That right there? Yeah, no, go, go way back. Arturo, go way back. <laughs> Are you, is it doing it automatically? Yeah, that's way ahead. Okay. <laughs> okay, you're there. Maybe it might, get, it might have gotten messed up on my, my part. But indulgences. Indulgences were a great money-making scheme. You could pay for your sins. Imagine if you could pay for your sins... Money to get out of hell. I'm sure a lot of us would would or might do that. Again, the people did not have access to the word of God. And because they did not have access to the word of God, they believed whatever the priests taught them and whatever the popes taught them. This is why, especially here at RBC, and I know that in, in a good church, we encourage you constantly. Read your word. Find out what God says for yourself. Don't take our word for it. You have access to his word. Find out what he has said. Amen. The common man was enslaved to Rome. If a man died without a will, the Roman Catholic Church would go and collect all of that person's possessions, their money, their house, everything they owned, unless that man had a will. It is estimated that at this time, Rome owned 50 percent of the real estate. Now, we're dealing with England. 50% of the real estate in England, Rome, the church, owned 50% of of England. The church owned 50% of England, which is why the people were so enslaved by Rome. They ruled with great power. Now, during this time, England and France were at war. I don't know how that got in there. Oh, okay, you're good, you're good. England and France were at war. The seat of the Pope, the Pope was sitting in France, which made England weak because everyone believed that the Pope had all the power. During this time, the the most influential university, thank you, sorry, 
was Oxford. There's a picture of Oxford right there. That's actually a literal picture. It just looks like a drawing, but it's not. That university was ruled by the graduates of the university, and they were mostly monks from the Dominican Republic, or from the Dominican. They were called Black Friars, or Dominican Friars. Remember them, because we're going to speak a lot about them tonight. Dominican Friars, or Black Friars. Now, these friars, these Dominican friars, they made it their life's work to undermine the laws of Oxford and of England, while at the same time applying the laws of the Roman Catholic Church to the university and to England. So because these friars were so influential, they tried to change the university. Not only did they try to change the university, they tried to change England. They would also send out traveling pardoners or traveling people who could forgive your sins by selling indulgences so that people's sins could be pardoned. John Wycliffe, he grew up in this kind of world. John Wycliffe eventually entered into the University of Oxford. And he came to Oxford at the age of 16. Now, you may think that's, that's impressive, but it was actually very common for people to enter into universities at very young ages, like the age of 16. As Wycliffe studied at Oxford, he gained such a great reputation for being a great mind that he was known as the flower of Oxford. He was one out of 30,000 students studying there at Oxford, and it was... Wycliffe, who was singled out as the most intelligent man there at Oxford. He would be the, the summa cum laude of Oxford. As a side note, there were 30,000 students when Wycliffe joined the university. And that number dropped from 30,000 to 10,000 as something known as the Black Plague entered into Europe. If you've never heard of the Black Plague, if you're from England... You know the Black Plague. The Black Plague was a disease in the form of a bacteria that came from Asia on the backs of lice that were living on rats. So as the boats came to England from Asia, they brought with them these rats that were infested with lice that had this disease that spread to all sorts of people in England. It is estimated that one third of the population died. That's amazing. Can you imagine one-third of the population of Bakersfield dying if we have 500,000 people? You mathematicians, you know who that is. Many, many people believe that it was judgment on England for allowing Jews to live in England. So guess what they did? Especially in Strasbourg. They started to murder Jews. Because they believed that if you kill the Jews, then God would take away the plagues. They were, they were the ones who believed that the Jews were responsible. All Jews, no matter who you were, were responsible for killing Jesus. As a matter of fact, in Europe, there was an attempt to exterminate every single Jew from all of Europe. Back to Wycliffe. By God's grace, Wycliffe survived this plague. And many people that John Wycliffe knew died. John Wycliffe worked hard and he earned his bachelor's degree at the age of 33. So he entered into the university at 16. He earned his bachelor's degree. Yeah, he earned his bachelor's degree when he's 33. Me and Patricia are looking at each other because we spent a lot of time in school. She's still in school longer than I, but it took me seven years to get my bachelor's. 
As another side note, if you ever wondered why universities called the first degree that you earn a bachelor's degree, it's because you could not earn your first degree if you were married. Therefore, when you finished your studies, you could marry. But until then, you were a bachelor. And then when you finished, you could marry. So you earned a bachelor's. After this, he continued his studies, and seven years later, he earned a master's of philosophy at the age of 40. Five to ten years later after this, Wycliffe was one of the few at that time to earn his doctorate from the University of Oxford. Now, all of this is interesting, but what does it have to do with the Reformation? Let's get to that. God opening the eyes of John Wycliffe. Let's go. We go one more. There you go. God opening the eyes of Wycliffe. While at Oxford, there was a man who was the Bishop of Catterbury named Thomas Bradwardine. If you don't know that name, write that name down. Thomas Bradwardine. He was one of the teaching students of Oxford. Oxford. This man, Thomas, was saved or regenerated while he was at Oxford, and he made it his life's goal to preach the gospel to the students who were coming into Oxford. He was a man who believed that we were saved by grace. He followed the teachings of Augustine rather than the teachings of Pelagian, who taught that we could somehow cooperate with God in bringing about the salvation, uh, salvation to sinners. And that sinners, by our own natural power, could earn the gift of God's grace. The predominating or the, the dominating view amongst all believers or all people who went to church was Pelagian view. That you could earn God's gift. That you somehow had to cooperate with God in order to be saved. But Augustine was a person who believed that it was all the work of God. And people like Bradwardine were reading Augustine and saying... I think this is all God's work. He began to preach the teachings of Augustine and also teach the word of God to the students there at Oxford. And he brought the gospel to those students in its most simple form so that they could understand and hear the gospel. Many of them, most of them, for the very first time. The monks did not know the word of God. The monks weren't taught the word of God. They were simply taught traditions. This man, Thomas Bradwardine, brought the gospel to them and preached them Christ. Stephen Lawson, Dr. Stephen Lawson says, the reformational preaching of John Wycliffe can be directly traced back to Bradwardine, who received his teachings from Augustine. So as I was studying, I thought, especially during the Reformation, I thought, well, it all starts with Martin Luther. But then I began to share with my brother today that God has always had someone carry the torch of the gospel no matter what. And it's such a blessing to, to trace this back. How there's always been someone who's held on to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And done what we should all do. Pass it on. John Wycliffe began to listen to this man preach. But he was not yet converted. Wycliffe, instead, he began to read what is known as the Latin Vulgate. If you haven't heard of that, write it down. The Latin Vulgate. It was the first translation of the Bible from Greek to Latin by a man by the name of Jerome in the year A.D. 430. The Catholic Church approved of this translation, and they believed it was a holy translation and that there was no need for any other translation. But the point or the problem was 
It was written in Latin. And nobody knew Latin. It was an ancient language that nobody knew except for the priests, popes, monks. And actually, the priests didn't even know it either. They just remembered these things but didn't understand these things. That was 1,000 years earlier. Wycliffe began to read the Latin Vulgate. And he began to have discussions with Thomas Bradwardine. And they had plenty of discussions about the Word of God. They had plenty of discussions about Augustine and the Gospel. Through these conversations, now listen, through the conversations with Thomas Bradbury, through what was going on with the Black Plague, through what, what Wycliffe was reading in the Latin Vulgate, also through what the Holy Spirit was doing inside of John Wycliffe, it seemed like at any moment the Lord was going to return and Judgment Day was upon him. All of these events brought Wycliffe to the point where he finally acknowledged that he was a lost sinner in need of a Savior, and the Lord brought him to saving faith. The Word of God became his foundation for truth, and he became, or he became, he came to believe that the Word of God needed to be preached to his generation, and he made it his life's goal from that moment on to bring the gospel to every single person who had ears to hear. Why? Because he saw what reading the Word of God had done for himself. And he says, man, if, if reading the word of God for myself is doing this for me, what would it do for everyone if everyone began to hear and read the word of God? So he made it his life's goal to read, to teach, to preach the word of God. Now, one thing began to happen as he began to read the word of God. He started to understand that what was written in the word of God was in direct opposition to what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching. Isn't that strange? That when you begin to read the word of God, you become closer and closer to truth and you begin to recognize the lies even clearer. And the lie that was being exposed at that time was the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the surprising thing for Wycliffe was Rome rules the world and they're ruling the world on lies. They're telling us lies. And he has the truth in his hands and he's thinking, if I could just get everyone to see the truth their eyes could be open and they would turn from Rome and turn to Christ. Wycliffe began to understand the time was perfect. The people were in disarray. People were afraid of the plague. People were afraid of, of Rome. People were afraid of the wars that were going on between France and England. So Wycliffe said, now is the time. John Wycliffe's mission. There we go. As Wycliffe began to read the word of God, more and more, he understood that his position at Oxford wasn't by chance, that God placed him in Oxford for a reason, that he had access to so many people that were influential, so many people that could pass this word on. So he began to slowly teach people the word of God. Now, if you guys remember um, when if you were here, when we began to to move in a more reformed way. I did not immediately announce, hey, we're reformed. Instead, we began to teach the book of Galatians. What were we doing? We were easing you into the truth. And then finally, we said, okay, we're reformed. But it took a while. Because if you automatically hit people, some of, those, some of you guys who are, are excited about, let's say, the doctrines of grace, you don't walk up to someone and say, hey, are you elect? They're going to run from you and say, you're crazy. Instead, you begin to share with them the gospel and the election and the predestined. You don't walk up to them and say, hey, are you predestinated? 
They're going to say you're crazy and whoever's teaching you is crazy. You don't do that. So Wycliffe had the same kind of, of wisdom that you ease people into these truths. Because if he began to teach what he knew, he would be rejected as a heretic and he would have no open door to share the gospel. So he began to explain the Bible in a very simple way to the students and to the faculty of Oxford. This is what he did. He opened up the Bible and he says, the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs, these are known as the poetry books. He go to the prophets and say, these are known as the major prophets. These are known as the minor prophets. And he introduced them, the Bible, in that very simple way. He showed them the four gospels and said, these are known as the synoptic gospels. The gospel of John. This is known as the gospel of John. Very, very simple. And he got their attention and he got their ear because he was showing them things that nobody was ever showing them and very basic things. He also then began to debate and challenge the Dominican friars. Why? Because they're there at Oxford. They're leading Oxford. He knows things that they don't know. So he starts to challenge them to debates and the errors that they were teaching. In 1360, Wycliffe wrote a book called Objections to the Friars. He went straight after them. This was a direct assault on the leadership of the University of Oxford. The friars were known as the begging friars because they would go to all the people, beg them for money, and then give them nothing in return. Wycliffe attacked their practices. He came, they came to Wycliffe, and what did they do? They demanded that, they, that he stop assaulting them, stop talking about us. But the common people, they loved it. They loved what Wycliffe was doing because he was exposing things that they'd never heard of before or never even thought of before and showing them, no, this is actually what the word of God says. And these people are taking advantage of you. He wanted doctrinal reform. And he soon found himself in a political battle that would literally change the world. How would it change the world? <laughs> That's actually a, a portrait that was taken of him or, or uh, painted of him. This man... We're taking, so, how would he change the world? We're taking a 150-year step back. Here's how. In the 1200s in England, during the reign of King John, King John was a weak king, there was a pope named Innocent. Does he look innocent to you? <laughs> this is Pope Innocent. He sat on the throne of Rome, or as the Pope. All people, he believed, were to bow their knees to the Pope. More specifically, to him, Pope Innocent. He made a decision that he was going to set up one of his own bishops in Canterbury. Now you may think, what's wrong with that? Only kings had authority to set up bishops wherever they wanted them to go. The Pope says... I'm going to exalt my authority over the king, and I'm going to put a bishop where I want him to be because I have the authority to do so. Pope Innocent said that he has the God-given right to do whatever he wants to do, basically. Now, the king, John, the weak king, he declared this shouldn't happen. Popes don't have authority to do these kinds of things. John did his best to fight him off and also kicked all the priests and bishops out of Rome. You guys all get out of here. 
And this was a way of showing that he was the boss and the Pope wasn't the boss. They fought back and forth for two years in England. But the Pope encouraged the King of France, go attack John in England. Guess what the King of France did? He attacked King John in England. John finally gave up. He recanted his sworn oath to protect his country, England, and also surrendered his kingdom to the Pope. And promised to pay the Pope 1,000 marks every single year. That, that today is about $1,500. Back then, it could be in the millions. Every single year. And then, King John went to the Pope who was in France. He bowed his knee before the Pope, and he took off his crown and laid it at his feet. England was humiliated. This is 150 years earlier. Two years after that, the leaders of England, they went to the king, John, and said, let's get this land back. Let's do something. Let's fight. But the king said, no, if we fight, we're going to be slaves to the pope and to Rome. But he didn't realize he was already a slave. So they pressured him to, to sign what is called Magna Carta. You guys ever heard of Magna Carta? Magna Carta is the great doctrine of England. It basically said this, that England will never be under a pope. That the only person who can rule England is the king, not a pope. They called it Magna Carta. They also wrote in there that they would always have freedom from any tyrant, any, any tyranny. England was ready to fight for freedom. And this war that was going on between England and France continued until the birth of John Wycliffe. So there's still this pressure going on. Now, 150 years later, this new pope comes up. The pope's name is Urban. Pope Urban. And guess what he does? He goes to the king of England and he tries to do exactly what Pope Innocent did 150 years earlier. Give me your land. Give me your money. I'm going to do what I want to do in your country. Urban, the pope was the first one to declare. I don't have a picture of him. They wouldn't let me get a picture of him. Urban was the first to declare that he was the vicar of Christ on earth. It started with Pope Urban. So he made a papal bull or a papal decree that he is the supreme lord over all earthly kingdoms. But England, they remembered what happened 150 years earlier. They said... You want to come and take over our country? We signed Magna Carta. You will not take over our country. But they thought we were going to take up arms and defend our country. But God had another plan. Instead of taking up arms, God was going to use John Wycliffe to bring the sword of the Spirit. The word of God. And he was going to use John Wycliffe to bring the word of God to the nation of England. And that was going to be the defense. Not war. During that time, John Wycliffe was named the head of a new department in England or at, at Oxford. But the interesting thing happened. While he was at Oxford, the king took notice of him. And the king says, I would like you to be my personal chaplain. See where, where it's all moving, okay? 
Wycliffe said to the king, there cannot be two temporal sovereigns in the country. The king at that time was King Edward. Either Edward is king or Pope Urban is the king. We make our choice. We accept Edward and we refuse Urban of Rome. Wycliffe basically said, we will not bow our knee to Rome. He did not believe that the Pope had any right to come in. Now, listen to this. Anybody who opposed Rome up until that time was crushed. Everyone is now watching Rome. But they're listening to Wycliffe. Because he's doing something that nobody's ever done. We don't got to bow our knees before the Pope. The Pope has no authority. Wycliffe began to preach at Oxford. The Pope's sovereignty over the nation is a sin. And he began to do it openly in front of everybody. This is huge. He did this from place to place, and then he wrote this little track. And in this little track, a little track is like what we pass out whenever we're doing um, uh, missionary work or ministry work. And in that track, he, he wrote, the Pope is the Antichrist. <laughs> what courage. And he signed John Wycliffe. Come and get me. He said, God has given his sheep to the Pope not to be pastored or to be pastured, not shorn and shaven. No papal collector should remain in England upon pain of life and limb. And no Englishman should become such a collector or remain at the court of Rome. What's he saying? Nobody should bow their knee to Rome. And also, you can't be a tax collector in England collecting for Rome. If you do, then you're an enemy of the state. Because you, you're basically a Judas. You're a traitor. The king loved him. King Edward loved, preach it, boy. <laughs> preach, Wycliffe. Because he's saying things that even King Edward would not dare say. The clergy, the friars, the monks, on the other hand, they hated Wycliffe. The Pope, he had enough of this man. This man has to be destroyed. He took the writings of Wycliffe. He examined them and he burned them in front of everyone and basically said the same should be done to Wycliffe. Wycliffe said things that cut straight to the heart of Rome. He said things like they have no power. Why give them money? Christ did not ordain the Pope. The Pope wrote three papal bulls or three decrees, sent them to England and urged Edward, silence this dangerous heretic Wycliffe. Well, you're talking about the king's right hand man. He's not going to silence him. He was called by the pope, the master of errors. And the pope demanded that he be put in prison and that all of his writings be locked away. For obvious reasons, right? Silence this man because he's speaking about all the things that we're doing wrong. On February 19, 1377, Wycliffe was put on one or the first of his four trials. The bishops of England, they brought him before their colleagues to make sure that he would be silenced. Now, Rome, he attacked Rome, but there was one issue. The king was on his side. 
So even though they had this, this trial, Wycliffe had the love of the king on his side. Now, was it because of the gospel? Probably not. It was probably more for political reasons than anything. But the king stood by Wycliffe. Not only this, but the crowds loved Wycliffe. I said this already. So Wycliffe is in the trial, okay? People found out that there was a trial going on, and they were trying to condemn Wycliffe. The people began to come out in droves, and they surrounded the place where the proceedings were taking place. They started chanting and screaming and yelling for the freedom of Wycliffe that the proceedings on the inside couldn't take place. They were too noisy. They were causing too much commotion. So they finally said, forget it. Go home. Wycliffe steps out, and the crowd goes crazy when they see him. He is a hero. Now, England and the world had not seen anything like this for a thousand years. Wycliffe was the voice of the gospel, the voice of the people, and they loved him. Wycliffe was convinced that everyone had the right to rebel against Rome. The people had always lived under the belief that Rome was the final authority. And he taught, fight against Rome. Rebel against Rome. Now, before that, if you fought against Rome, you're inviting the wrath of God on your life. You were basically being told, if you fight against the church, you're going to hell. Wycliffe was saying, no, that's not what the word of God says. The word of God says you should have no person above you but Christ. And man, the people said, okay, we'll take that. We like that. <clears throat> Wycliffe stood for truth, for liberty, and that the final authority for his life was the word of God. Wycliffe said not only this, but that you would be blessed for following the word of God and blessed for not following the authority of this Antichrist. The leaders of Rome, though, they didn't give up their pursuit of Wycliffe. They did not also give up the pursuit of trying to destroy the gospel. One year later, Wycliffe is back on trial. The goal of Rome was to lock this guy away in a dungeon. But once again, the crowds found out that he's on trial and they come back out. Not only that, but the Queen of England sent a letter to the court forbidding any condemnation of Wycliffe. Don't touch the man. Because of all the support that Wycliffe had and because God was on his side, during that hearing, he did something very dramatic. He walked out. He didn't even sit through the proceedings. He found out all the support that he had. And once he found out, he literally stood up and walked out. I'm out of here. I don't need to be here. No one stopped him. No one could. No one dared. This man was protected by God. As soon as he left, he thought, I'm going to write a book and summarize everything that I would have said at the trial. We've summarized them in nine points. Number one, these are his points. The Pope's spiritual authority is not absolute. Popes have no power over kings. Popes may also fall into sin just like any other man. Priests have no power to absolve or forgive men of their sins or power to anathematize them, to 
the curse there. Excommunication from the church of Rome does not place the souls of men in danger. Priests are to be bound to preach the gospel, not compel their subjects to pay tithes. Hmm, sounds like that should be preached today. The real estate in England that was owned by Rome was illegally taken and was not lawfully theirs. England had the right to take their land back from Rome. The Pope was a man of sin <laughs> who exalt, exalted himself above God. He, he said, hey, this is what I was going to say. So instead of saying it just in the trial, he wrote it, published it, copied it, sent it out. He said, that'll make more of an effect than just in this trial. Let me write the book, send it out, and send it to the people. This teaching was revolutionary. It was literally revolutionary. What boldness. When you hear me preaching about the, the things that I'm preaching about today, there's no penalty for what I preach. During his time, you could die. And as a matter of fact, people did die, which we'll get to in a little bit. But where did he get his boldness? Word of God. He studied the word of God and said, this is my weapon. You can kill me. You can burn me. You can do whatever you want. But this is my defense. Now, Wycliffe knew he had to get a new strategy, though. Oh, yeah. There we go. New strategy of Wycliffe. In 1381, John Wycliffe suffered his first stroke. The Dominican friars heard about the stroke that Wycliffe had, and they believed that he was about to die. So they rushed to his side, and they said, death is on your lips. Recant everything that you've said about us. Take it all back, and then God will let you live. But if you don't, you're going to die, and you're going to burn in purgatory and in hell. Wycliffe is laying in his bed, okay? He's sick. He's got a stroke. He sits himself up, and he says to them, these are exclamation points, I shall not die, but live again to declare the evil deeds of the friars. <laughs> Word has it that the moment he stood up and yelled these things, they ran out of the room. <laughs> these Dominican friars. And yes, he lived on. But he knew he had to take a different approach. He had something in mind that had never been done before. John Wycliffe knew that in order for him to continue to fight... He could not be the only one with the weapon. So he took the Latin Vulgate and he began to translate it into the English language. You guys ever heard of, of the Saxon language? That's what you and I speak today. It was a vulgar language. It was seen as uneducated. It was seen as, as dirty. What I'm saying right now, Saxon, English and he translated into the common tongue which everyone spoke, Saxon, English. This was a great work. It had never been done before. The Latin language was seen as holy, could not be tampered with. The English language, as I said, was vulgar, dirty. It was the language of peasants. And he was taking the word holy to the common peasant man. Wycliffe was about to give the word of God to the people. And in 1382, he completed the translation of the English Bible. It was said that when he finished translating, it was like uh, bees in a beehive. 
As soon as he finished translating, he would pass it off and hundreds of people started copying down that English Bible and then passing it out. Wycliffe would translate. Those who worked with him would begin to copy. And many of the people were converted while hearing his preaching or while working through the translation. Many of them were common people that Wycliffe had taught the word of God. They were known as the Wycliffeites, or, which we'll talk about in a little while, the Lollards. That's a very uh, important name, Lollards. Remember that. Now, as soon as Rome found out what Wycliffe was doing, they immediately condemned him as being demon-possessed and doing a work of the devil. He was called a child of the devil. He was called the Antichrist for doing what? Translating the word of God into the mother tongue so that everyone could read it. This was from the Pope. The Pope only wanted people to know what he wanted them to know. For a thousand years, there was no light. All of a sudden, the light begins to shine in darkness. And it begins to spread throughout the horizon. Wycliffe had placed into the hands of the people their true Magna Carta, the word of God. He also began to attack the doctrine of transubstantiation. The church told the people that when they ate the bread and drank the wine of the Eucharist at the Mass, that they were actually eating Jesus' body and actually drinking Jesus' blood. Transubstantiation. They also taught that the priest was re-presenting Christ as a sacrifice for the sins of the people every time they met. Wycliffe went totally against this teaching. Now, many people disagreed with him when he got to transubstantiation because it was so ingrained in their tradition that that's what it was. That's what it is. And every time I take that, I'm being forgiven of my sin. Wycliffe taught that's nowhere in Scripture. But the people who really went after him were those who worked with him at Oxford. So 12 times he says, you don't like what I'm teaching? Let's debate it. You don't like what I'm teaching? Let's debate it. I've got the word of God on my side. You don't like it? Let's debate. And they would not. They refused to debate him. He also was threatened with excommunication, with imprisonment. But instead, he was just fired. <laughs> they let him go from Oxford. And then he was taken to trial for the third time. The same people who had been accusing him were coming up with the same uh, accusations. But this time, there was no king by his side. There was no queen by his side. There was no crowds standing outside shouting out, release Wycliffe. But he had one very important person on his side. Listen to this. At the proceedings, they began to give their accusations against Wycliffe. All of a sudden, the building began to shake. The ground began to shake. Stones from the rooftops began to fall. The steeples began to fall. It was an earthquake. As soon as the proceedings began, an earthquake happens. Wycliffe, when it's over, says, this is judgment of God against you. It is called the Earthquake Council. Guess what they did? They let him go. (laughs) They let him go. (laughs) I mean, they cannot get this guy. Two years later, he was brought back for a fourth time. Same issues, same trials, same people. 
Wycliffe is now an old man. And he says this. With whom do you think you're contending? Who do you think you're fighting against? With an old man on the brink of the grave? No. You're fighting against truth. Truth which is stronger than you and truth that will overcome you. Again, for the final time, he walked out. No one stopped him. No one dared. There's a a writer who said he was just like his master, who after being pursued by the crowds in Nazareth, simply passed through them. Their mouths were shut. But soon again, the support of Wycliffe and the support of the country disappeared. Wycliffe is now old and seems to be running out of steam. And it seemed like all the work that he had done was for nothing, but it was not yet done. Wycliffe had one more final win in him. Wycliffe, finishing strong. The darkness seemed to have taken over the light, but while Wycliffe was losing support and seemingly out of sight, out of mind, he was in the silence, working behind the scenes, and he wrote his most important work, which is called The Trial Log. In that, he stated the principle that where the Bible and Rome do not agree, we must obey the Bible. And where human conscience and a human authority are in conflict, we must obey our conscience. He sounded like Martin Luther, who later was to say at his own trial, I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So he was not silent and also planned on passing on the word of God and his teachings to the men that stayed loyal to the word of God and who remained followers of Wycliffe. They were called the Bible men. The students were taught how to live. They were also called the Lollards. Remember that name? Okay. They were taught how to live. They were not allowed to beg or to take anything from anyone. He taught them to work for everything that they got. He taught them how to preach and he taught them how to think theologically. He also taught them expositional preaching, which is what I do on Sundays. And to my surprise, he's actually one of the earlier reformers to do this. John Calvin gave us the system of how to do expositional preaching John Wycliffe was one of the first in over 1,000 years to reintroduce us to the biblical method of preaching. He taught that preaching was primarily a tool or the primary tool that God used to bring people to salvation, not the sacraments of Rome. He knew that it was the word of God that changed people's lives. He discipled these men and taught them to embrace suffering, embrace death for the glory of God, for the gospel of God. These men were easy to spot, the Lollards. They are there. They're there, these guys here. They walked around with no shoes. They wore these long robes that were brown. They carried staffs, and in their long, deep pockets, a copy of the Wycliffe Bible. That they went and shared all across that nation. They preached everywhere. And so many people came to Christ and left Rome because of the preaching of the Lollards that the bishop complained that they were just like their master. Eloquent, mighty in speech. It was said at that time, one out of every two men is a Lollard. 
<laughs> and I mean, the gospel was moving. These men would soon be persecuted to the point that if you were caught with a Wycliffe Bible, you would be burned with that Bible chained around your neck. Once again, an attempt to take the word of God from the hands of the people. Later, it was a capital offense to own, listen, or even read the Bible. Capital offense meaning you are put to death. In 1521, 500 lollards were burned alive for preaching the gospel at a place called Smithsfield in England. And Smithsfield, England still does exist today. You can see where that place or where that tragedy took place. But before all of this, Wycliffe is called to trial for the fifth time. He's an old man, but he's called to Rome to stand before the Pope. But he can't make it. He's too sick, he's too old, but he writes a letter and says, I would love to come and present the gospel to the Pope, but my health will not allow it. December 29th, 1384, while Wycliffe was about to take the Lord's Supper, Wycliffe suffered his third stroke, and two days later, he went home to be with the Lord. When Wycliffe died, Rome took his bones and his body body and his bones, broke them, burned them, gathered them, and then threw them in the river so that no one would ever have a place to go and honor Wycliffe. It is said, though, that as those ashes spread to the river, they went to streams and eventually ended up in the ocean that would reach the world just like the gospel would. Why mention this man when it comes to the Reformation? Because he was not moved. He was a man of boldness. He stood for the word of God. He trusted the word of God as his only source of authority. Steve Lawson says, Wycliffe, the morning star of the Protestant Reformation, shines as a gleaming light against the backdrop of the Roman Catholic, or the the dark backdrop of the Roman Catholic Church in the 14th century. It is often said that the light shines brightest when the night is darkest. Wycliffe proved or is the fruit of this adage. But his influence didn't stop there. There was a man named Jerome who was converted while reading one of the teachings of Wycliffe. He took the teachings back to his home country, Bohemia, and translated them into the Bohemian language, which is modern-day Czech, Czechoslovakia. A revival broke out in Bohemia, and a man by the name of John Huss got a hold of these teachings of Wycliffe. And he was used to make a huge impact in the country of Bohemia for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is known as the fiery forerunner of the Reformation. He's also known as the goose. Because his last name, Hoos, is translated goose. We'll see that when he's about to be killed, he says, you can cook this goose, but there will be a swan who comes after me that you will not be able to silence. That swan is Martin Luther. Next time we gather, we're going to talk about the tremendous life of John Huss. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. We thank you for your grace, your mercy. We thank you for John Wycliffe. We thank you for the servant that you used to carry on the torch of the gospel. 
And we thank you, God, that it was carried to Bohemia and then to Germany. And then, God, to France. And then, God, to, oh gosh, the world. (laughs) And we thank you, God, that we, sitting here in Bakersfield, California, are results of people like John Huss, John Wycliffe, not bowing their knee to the false authority of Rome or any other tyrant, but that they stood, they carried your word, and Lord, give us the boldness and the courage to do the same in this day, so that it may be looked back upon that there was a generation in this day, in this time, who stood for the word of God and would not bow their knee to the enemy. We thank you for this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A lot of information, but I pray that that the story uh, is something that grasps your heart to where you can understand the impact of this, this great man and how we can learn from his life. Are there any questions? Any questions? Any comments? No? I'll give you a second. Any questions? Any comments? Anything you want to say? <coughs> How many of you guys are awake? Okay. I, I could point out some of you that were asleep, but I won't. What, what, uh, any questions? Any comments? Anything you guys want to say? Ray. Bible. Yeah. There's been a Wycliffe Bible out for. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Some of you guys might want to go out and get a Wycliffe Bible now, which is pretty cool. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, we're going to hear, uh, we're going to see a Wycliffe translation. We're going to. Um, we're going to see a Martin Luther translation who translated the Bible into German. We're going to eventually see a Tyndale, William Tyndale Bible. You guys have all heard of Tyndale. Um, and these are men that have got the word of God out. Um, so yeah, yeah, we're quick Bible. Go get one. Ray? Another <laughs> question. King James. Yes. Is he in King James is not going to come until the, until the, what, 1611? So he's not going to come until 17th century. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, pretty close. Pretty close. Uh, King James will, will be in there. And uh, I don't think we'll get that far. I actually don't want to go that far. That's... We're gonna. What we're gonna do is we're gonna do the Reformation, and then we're gonna take a break, and then later we're gonna do the Great Awakening. Um, that'll be later, later this year, I think. Um, we'll, we'll do the Great Awakening with the Puritans and, and all that stuff. But this is a lot of work. <laughs> so I, once we're done, I'm gonna take a breather. Um, any questions? Wow. Okay. Isn't it? Yeah, it's just, it's just a lot of this history, you know, history 
funny because I, I was talking to my brother today saying, I'd like to do like from 100 AD, like 100 years after the passing of Christ, and then go there and, and see what happens. A lot of the roads, they're, they're all yeah, the same. They're all the same. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, and Ro- the Roman Catholic Church had a lot to do with those gigantic uh, churches and cathedrals. I, I, it, it's almost kind of similar to what... Um, uh, the Mormon Church is doing today in setting up their gigantic um, temples. Um, those may be things, hopefully not, that stand for a long time that people are going to look back on like, wow, what was this? They, that was a church for false teachers. <laughs> yes. This is church history 101 that you would be getting in seminary. I'm not, uh, I don't, I'm not the best teacher, but you're giving me information. They wouldn't teach it as exciting as I would, though. <laughs> <laughs> I think they put it around. Would they, I don't think they teach it as much gusto. <laughs> it's because I'm a former charismatic. how I felt when I was studying and learning and getting it. It's just like, why don't we talk about this guy? Yeah, yeah. Now we talked about him. Now you got it. Hopefully it's recorded. If not, then I hope you took good notes. Ray, did you have one with you, brother? The other one was uh, the Geneva Bible. Oh, that's the name I was thinking of. The Geneva Bible is going to come out of um, Geneva. Yeah. It's going to be 15... 16th century is going to be translated by John Calvin. Well, it does. It comes out of that. Yes. The Bible yep. That's actually, I think, before the King James came out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's actually the Geneva Bible is what the Puritans came to the new country with. Yeah, that's what I was getting to. They yeah. used that Bible. Uh-huh. That wasn't the King James Bible. No. And they came over to the new world. Yeah, yeah. The Puritans and the Pilgrims. Yes, sir. You want to teach? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know bits and pieces. Yeah. <laughs> Praise God. Uh, and I learned some other stuff. You're tracking with me, then. You know, if you're connecting the dots, that's good. Uh, what's the difference between the Orthodox and the Are they the same church? Orthodox Roman Catholic yeah. versus a Roman Catholic? Okay. You want to explain? There's like they're based like what type of Yeah. So back there in Europe that's a lot of the Orthodox. Yeah. They're not the same because the one that I visited, um, when I was in Europe, we dealt with a lot of Orthodox. And um like a lot of their structure is the same as the Roman Catholic, but they differ in um, some of those sort of beliefs. Hmm. So, like, they're not the same, but a lot of those structures are the same. Interesting. Yeah. 
Are they, are, are, are they believers in the gospel, though? No. no. Okay, oh, so they're totally Christian. They're both radical. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's even more. Really? Hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, the gargoyles were actually supposed to be um, images that warded off evil spirits. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I have pictures from like Orthodox churches in Romania and stuff, and they're like totally like hmm. I, that'd be something to good good to look into more. Yeah. Right on. All right. Anything else? Anything else? Comments? Okay. Well. Let's get out of here. Amen. Let's pray. Father, be with your people as they go. Protect them until the next time that we meet, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Grace be with you. Have a great night. This phone so that people recorded the whole thing. Yeah, I did. Good.